Good morning. And it's good to be back with you all in person this week. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your watch care. We ask that you will join us today, lead us in this discussion, that we can uh, know you better and be more effective at sharing the truths of your kingdom with the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And so we are doing uh, lesson two in this study guide on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title is Death in a Sinful World. And the memory text for this week is Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So first question, from where does death come? What is the source of death? Separation. Separation from God, sin, Satan. Okay, I like all these answers. You know, there are two... There are two options. We're talking the death from sin, okay, that, or the death that, 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 that the text is talking about. One man sinned and because death, death entered. So it's the death that, that entered because of sin. There are two options, the imposed law view and the design law view. In the imposed law view, death comes from God as an inflicted and just punishment for sin. That's where it comes from. In the design law view, death comes from Satan and sin and from breaking God's law that severs the one from the source of life. So those are the two basic views of where death comes from. Which is more consistent with Scripture? Death as a punishment that comes from God or death that comes from sin itself? Well, some quick texts, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is, Okay. James 1.15, sin when full grown brings forth death. Uh, Galatians 6.8, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction, not from God. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So the devil is the one who holds the power of death. Or... 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, uh, this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus for the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So design law, the design law view is that God's laws are the laws upon which he constructed life to actually function and operate upon sin breaks God's law, breaks the design for life, and without intervention from our Creator, if He does nothing, the result of that is ruin and death. Because you're broken from the protocols and principles upon which life is built. This was acted out in the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sinner would confess their sin on the head of the animal, and the sinner, not the priest, would then cut the circulation. And Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood. And what's the blood do? It circles. Circles. It's just circles. It circles. The circle of love. The principle of giving. It just goes round and round. But sin severs the circle. It doesn't give. It flows out. And what results? Death. Sin breaks God's design for life. Results in ruin and death. It's very acted out teaching. But the imposed law view posits that sin is a legal problem that gets one in trouble legally with the ruling authority of the universe. 
Death would not occur in the legal model upon the wicked unless the cosmic ruler makes use of his power to inflict the punishment of death upon the rule breakers who haven't had the payment made to the ruling authority to pay for their sin. In the penal legal system, this infliction of punishment of using power to kill is called justice. That's what it's called. But this teaching is actually a violation of the law of liberty. To believe this, to believe that, that if you don't love God and you don't trust him, he will use power to torture and kill you, undermines trust, incites rebellion, and perpetuates sin. That's what this teaching does. Because you cannot get love and trust by threatening to kill people who won't love and trust you. Now let's look at the second paragraph in the lesson. It says, Having been cast down out of heaven, Satan decided to destroy the happiness of Adam and Eve on earth and thereby cause grief in heaven. He imagined that if he could get, if he could in any way beguile them, Adam and Eve, to disobedience, God would make some provision whereby they might be pardoned and then himself and all his fallen angels would be in a fair way to, uh, would be in a fair way to share with them in God's mercy. And this, uh, I like how the lesson uh, quoted here and used the language of imagined. I like how they used, uh, they wrote that Satan imagined a legal solution to the sin problem. Yes, he did. He imagined some legal pardon could be devised. That is Satan's imagination. This legal theory built on the idea that God's law functions like human law, that the sin problem can be solved with a legal solution. It's all in Satan's imagination. It's not reality. It's fantasy. It's not reality. Some might argue, though, and go, wait a second, hold on. Ten Commandments, man. Ten Commandments. Those are not from Satan. God gave those. Wrote them with his own finger. So how can you say that, that, that given laws is, is something that Satan does if, if God wrote them with his own finger? But when and to whom did God actually give those Ten Commandments? What do they reveal about God? Why would he do it? When a parent gives rules to their child to either not play in the street or they must brush their teeth, when the parent gives those rules to a child, is a parent setting up a legal system of justice that requires that if the parent catches the child playing in the street and therefore the child is being disobedient to the rules established by the parent, the parent is now required by law, by justice, to kill their child. And, and because they love their child, what they will do instead is they will kill their spouse and let the spouse's death be the payment to them for the broken law of the child. Do you understand? That's what most of Christianity teaches that our Heavenly Father made up a system of rules, and if you break them, law requires him to kill, but instead he, he sent another member of the Godhead, we identify as his son, and killed him instead, and if we accept the payment, then he won't kill us. 
Does that make sense to anybody? Do you know that's the most common view in Christianity? Yes. I understand that uh, the word used in Greek is a leg, means legal, justification. I don't know where or what, but <coughs> you probably have heard that. Too. No, I have not. The Greek New Testament does not use the legal language. That's, that's Latin translations, justification, propitiation, uh, the word justice and, and justify. The, these in the Greek are dikaio, dikaiosune. It's also translated as righteous or righteousness. Righteous and righteousness are not legal words, and that's the Greek word. The, the legal words are justice and justify, which come out of the Latin, which, which we have incorporated because our law language, in, in English at least, is Latin-based. And so we have read into this a legal concept that's actually not in the Greek. So the parent who makes up rules, though, for the child not to play in the street or to brush their teeth before they go to bed, is not setting up a legal justice system. What are they doing? How would you describe that theologically? When the parent gives these rules to their three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, what would you theologically say the parent is doing? No, they're not disciplining, because disciplining would be when they catch them in the street and then they act for breaking the rule. That would be the discipline. But the setting up the rule is not the discipline. What's the rule? Protection. They're protecting, yes, okay. But what's the theological? Okay, certainly it's love, absolutely. It's It's a demonstration of love. Yes. When Paul says about that we, we have to grow, where we are child, we don't understand, but we have to grow to understand. Yep. So this Not, the Bible says in, in, in the Ten Commandments says, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That's what we do a little child. When yep. we are little so when a parent sets up these rules, don't play in the street, what's the theological term what the parent's doing? Protecting them. They are protecting them, there's no question, 100%. It's an act of grace. Oh. <laughs> it's grace. It's also an act of love, because love is always gracious. It's an act of intervening, stepping down, dumbing down, making it uh, a rule, stepping in between, taking upon the parent's shoulders a, pers- a responsibility that's actually not there. What's the responsibility? Or, or view, a view that's not there. So the view is, if the child is playing in the street, and you say to the child, that has a rule from a parent, What's wrong? Why, why is it wrong to play in the street? What does the child say? I'll be punished. There you go. Mommy and daddy will punish me. What makes it wrong? I'll get punished by mommy and daddy. So in the child's mind, where does the harm come from for playing in the street? The harm comes from mommy and daddy in the child's mind. It's an act of grace for the parent to allow themselves to be misunderstood as a source of harm to their child when they're actually not a source of harm to their child. Okay? The real harm comes from breaking the laws of physics when their body gets hit by a car. That's the real harm. But the child can't process this, so the parent in love, in mercy, in grace, steps down and puts themselves between the child and the ultimate real threat and allows uh, the, and provides a stepping rule, a small rule for the child, for their childlike mind to latch onto until they can grow up. You talk about growing up and understand. And when we grow up, we look back and we remember, oh yeah, I remember, I was really afraid if my dad caught me in the street, I was going to get a whipping. I was going to get a whipping. Oh no, I don't know. So I was really afraid. I wasn't afraid of a car hitting me. I wasn't. I was afraid of my dad giving me a whipping. Okay? But as I look back on it, I realize, well, my dad was never really the source of harm to me. The source of harm would have been hit by a car. That was, but I didn't see it. 
Okay, this is why God gave the Ten Commandments. This is God working in the Old Testament. This is God working through human history. God steps in and allows himself to be viewed as the one who caught, and the Bible writers write it this way a lot of times. So the writer of Galatians actually tells you that the law was added because of sin, and the law that was added is both the ceremonial and the moral law, but especially the Ten Commandment law it was added. And it was added for multiple purposes. It was added as a diagnostic instrument to expose sin so we could understand that we're sick in sin. It was added as a protective hedge to, even if you don't know why you shouldn't play in the street, it makes no sense to you. If you don't play in the street, you don't get hit. Okay? So even if you don't know why you shouldn't commit adultery or you shouldn't steal or you shouldn't run, it doesn't make it, but you don't do it, you don't get the damage to your conscience and your soul from not doing these things. Okay? And you don't get the, 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 um, societal and, and relational damage that comes from doing these things. And it's also designed to lead us as a schoolmaster to Christ for our healing and and maturing. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and wrote 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law was not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels and the ungodly and all these. And what he's saying is the, 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 uh, the Ten Commandments, are like an MRI or a CAT scan. The MRI machine was not made for people with perfect health. It was actually made for people who have sickness to look inside to see what we can't see with our naked eye to identify the pathology. That's what the purpose of the MRI was made for. But the MRI didn't fix anything. It didn't cure anything. It only identifies and brings to conviction, yep, you've got this health problem, and leads you to the doctor who can treat you. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. An MRI of the soul to show us there's something wrong, it doesn't fix anything, and it leads us to Christ who fixes it. That's his purpose. So what do you think about the idea? Let's see. Did I read that here? In the lesson somewhere, and I'm not sure if I read it in that paragraph, it says that they were not even to expose themselves to it. Did y'all see that in the lesson? Sabbath lesson? Right after the quote. What, there it is, yes. It says, Adam and Eve were not to expose themselves to temptation. It says it right there in the lesson. Thank you. So what do you think of this idea? This is this idea that they say here? It's classic, imposed, human law, think. I'm going to show it to you. Consider this commentary from a book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Think what's being described here in this book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and what this says about they were not even supposed to be exposed. This is out of page 123 of that book. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions and barriers against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force them to obey. Have you ever seen this? More rules, more regulations, more restrictions, more requirements. Have you ever seen it maybe around Sabbath keeping to force people to obey? Continuing on with the quote. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart. To do this kills love. Why? Because it's an imposed law system that puts more rules on you, makes you feel more coerced, violates the law of liberty, and through violation of liberty and coercion, love is destroyed always, every time. But why are they doing it? They want to be good. They want to obey. Let's make more rules. Let's make us more stressed. Let's make us more fearful. Continue on with the quote. And love dies out of the heart. And with it perishes love for his fellow men. 
A system of human invention with its multitudinous exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard. The prescribed human standard? Impose law, rule keep, legal theology. That's a human standard. And if you aren't keeping the rules the way we say the rules should be kept, then you're falling short, you're wicked, you're a sinner. We will judge you. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Have you ever been in a church like that? I have. You ever felt that? You ever been on the receiving end of that? Uh, Paul dealt with that in the New Testament. Do you remember uh, the petty spies that wanted to know whether uh, Timothy had been circumcised or not? Imagine being on that investigation committee. <laughs> yeah, they had to investigate that. <laughs> Let's figure that one out. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, God did warn them not to go near the tree. Wait, wait, let, 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 let me finish before you. I might, I might, I might save some, some, something for you here. <clears throat> Does the text support the idea that God did not want them exposed? Oh, excuse me. Um, the text that they reference when they say don't expose, they reference Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Let's read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It's from the NIV. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Did it say they were not supposed to be exposed? Anything about that at all? That's Eve's argument. Eve adds we're not even to touch it. Touch it. Yeah, yeah, it's Eve's argument. That's added. <clears throat> Let's let's uh, ask who put the tree of knowledge in the garden where they lived. Who put that tree there? So if he really didn't want them exposed, he didn't have the power not to put the tree there. He was powerless. Uh, Satan Satan snuck that tree in when he wasn't looking. Uh, or did God put it there? And where did he put it in the garden? Genesis two nine. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Was God? intending for them to come to the tree of life periodically. And in order to come to the tree of life periodically, what would they have to come near? The other tree. The other tree. So if, if they're not to be exposed, then why did God put it there right in the center next to the tree of life? I'm, I'm taking issue. This is an added rule. An added rule that the lesson authors have put in. But why was Eve told not to leave her husband's side? Well, that's a different question. It wasn't about exposure. It was how and when and under what circumstances were they to be exposed. They were absolutely to be exposed. 100%. I'm going to give you the data on it. Again, I was trying to save you. <laughs> what is it that God wants from his intelligent beings? His friendship. He wants our love, our trust, our loyalty, our devotion, our friendship. Okay. Can God get that by rules? Can he get it by threats? Can he get it by withholding information and presenting the circumstances in a false way? Well, we are like a child like now, yes, but at that time, even they were, at that time they were like a child. So even, even now, can God get our love and trust by threatening to punish us if we don't give him love and trust? Well, sometimes he used certain things like to get to, to us, but not necessarily is the end of his law. He wants, sometimes he uses certain things. It's not because he wants, it's because we understand. We see the Old Testament, many times he used human inclination in order to get him. So can God get love, trust, 
loyalty devotion by threatening to punish people who don't get it, give it to no, him. No, you don't trust him. No. He can never get it. No. Not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit says. Mm-hmm. With it, spirit works as the Lord. Zechariah 4, six. You cannot get love and trust by threatening to harm people. You can't get love and trust by setting up a system of legal rules. You also can't get love and trust, intimacy, at one mint, by withholding critical information about the circumstances and situation. Let me finish. So what was actually necessary for Adam and Eve in their sinless world for them to have eternal unity and and trust and devotion and loyalty to God? Well, first off, God has to be loyal and God has to be trustworthy, which he is, but that's a requirement. But they have to be presented with the questions They have to evaluate them, and they have to make a choice. Who would they trust? Who would they believe? What methods would they practice? Who would they be loyal to? They had to actually choose it. Before they sinned in Eden, they had the ability in their own sinless human strength to resist temptation and to form a perfect sinless character. They could have done it without the added aid of the Holy Spirit that we need. They were created without any internal flaws or temptations. They were, they had within them the power to resist the temptation in their perfect state. Okay? But the only way they could be so settled into the truth about God, to be eternally secure, was for them to face the questions, weigh the issues, and choose to reject the lies and solidify their own understanding, their own heart, their own values, their own methods, their own purposes, in harmony and union with God. They had to make that choice. No one can make it for them. The tree of knowledge and good and evil was not the tree of cognitive information. It was not the tree of lecture didactics. They had already met in the cool of the day with God every day. The angels had come to them. They'd already been given didactic and cognitive warning and information about the war in heaven. This was not the tree where they would learn about the war or about an enemy. They'd already been told about all of that. This is the tree that they would choose what they would know. And remember the Bible word know. Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived life eternal. They might know you, the only true God. It is about the knowledge of experience and intimacy. They would choose to know either good, love, trust, loyalty, faithfulness, righteousness. They would choose to know it by choosing it. Or they would choose to know lies, fear, selfishness, guilt, shame. They would choose to know one. They would choose to know the good by rejecting the lie. Or they would choose to know the evil. They would know it. Not know about it. They would know it in their being. God told them about the sin or what Lucifer had done in heaven. So they kind of understood that Yes. That, uh, there had been a yes. conflict in heaven. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And, uh, yes. They were warned about an enemy. Well, yeah, I know they were warned about And they were told about the rebellion of, of Lucifer in heaven and a third of the angels that went with him. So I came across this quote from Conflict and Courage as I was studying these things. And so, but, by the way, thus it was God's purpose that they be exposed to the questions and the allegations for their own ability to weigh the issues 
and choose to know good and reject the evil and thus develop a perfect, sinless human character. It was God's purpose. They could not do that without the exposure. So this quote out of Conflict and Courage, page 13. Our first parents, though created innocent, oh, and by the way, this this out of Conflict and Courage, this is a historic quote coming from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church named Ellen White. And it will show the viewpoint that the Seventh-day Adventist founders took on this issue. And you will notice a distinction that the church 150 years ago or so saw things in a certain way that are exactly the opposite of what we're being presented with today. You, sh- you should, and I'm going to point this out repeatedly, that the founding of the Adventist church had a certain worldview and a certain understanding of the law of God as design law and the, and the issues in the great controversy, and those have been replaced in the Adventist church with a penal legal system of rules. So this, notice what we read out of the quarterly, where it said, God warned Adam and Eve not to expose themselves to temptation. I read the Bible text they referenced, it didn't say that. I gave you the understanding of what God wanted for them, that the only way for them to be sealed, they had to weigh the issues. They had to be fully persuaded in their own mind. They had to be exposed. He put the tree in the middle right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil where they would be exposed. And then here's the historic view out of historic Adventism. Our first parents, though created innocent and holy, were not placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. That first statement is talking about the law of liberty. Love only exists in freedom. God gave them real freedom to either be loyal or to rebel. He did not control them. They were not robots. They were to enjoy enjoy communion with God and with holy angels, but before they could be rendered eternally secure, their loyalty must be tested. What law lens are you looking through? This imposed law, we got a rule, we can break the rule, now you're in legal trouble? Or is this the test of reality? This is not a rule-keeping test, this is a test of, will they choose love? Will they choose trust? Will they choose loyalty? It's a test of character, it's a test of methods, it's a test of principles, it's a test of how they will operate. That's what it's a test of. Continue on with the quote. At the very beginning of man's existence, a check was placed upon the desire for self-indulgence the fatal passion that lay at the foundation of Satan's fall. A check, a check, meaning an opportunity for them to be tempted with self-indulgence and for them to exercise their own individual willpower to say no to this. To, this is how they check themselves. You're being tempted. No, I'm checking that. That's a tempt. I'm being tempted. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. They were tempted. But they had a, had a check was placed on that. What was the check? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, where they could be tempted, but they could say no. Because what did God want for them? He wanted them to get stronger. And the only way they can get stronger and mature is exercise. The law of exertion. They had to be tempted. They had to face it. They had to exercise their God-given reasoning abilities. They had to make a choice. They had to say no. And this would have matured them, and they would have been beyond future temptation. It was for their good. Can you go on with this quote? The tree of knowledge, which stood at the cent- near the tree of life in the midst of the garden, was to be a test of the obedience, faith, and love of our first parents. While permitted to eat freely of every other tree, they were forbidden to taste of this on pain of death. They were also, listen to these words, they were also to be exposed to the temptations of Satan. Historic view, current view. Understand, they're diametrically opposed. I mean, these are not, well, they're two views, two ways of saying the same thing. 
they were to be exposed, God warned them not to be exposed. Those aren't two ways of saying the same thing. These are opposites. Why? Because they're coming out of two ways of understanding God's law and government. The design law of you is the reality that God created them with the capacity for self-development, and he wanted them to develop themselves in harmony with his principles. They had to be exposed, and they had to choose to say no, to know the good and reject the lies, and they would have matured. This rule is rule-keeping. Don't expose. Stay good. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. They were to... They were also to be exposed to the temptations of Satan, but if they endured the trial, they would finally be placed beyond his power to enjoy perpetual favor of God. Now listen, why? It goes on to explain. It's all design law. It's how reality works. God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automaton meaning a robot, and robots can't love. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charges of God's arbitrary rule. Understand, the lessons view sustains Satan's charges of God's arbitrary rule. That's what you get when you replace design law with imposed law. Because Satan is the author. I'm going I'm to go through a whole bunch more. The lesson's filled with it. And it's infection. It's an infection of Christian thought. This does not start with the leaders in our church or people who write these quarterly. It doesn't start there. They're the, very likely, these people have very good hearts and they're seeking to do the best that they know how to do to honor the Lord, their motive to uplift God and, and advance His church. I don't see them intentionally any more than when Peter said to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, to go through this. And Jesus said to him, get you behind me, Satan. I don't think Peter was actually in his heart motive trying to undermine the Lord, but it was in his ignorance of understanding the mission, purpose, and methods of God that he was being used at that moment to put out an idea that was against God. I think this happens in our church. God did not want Adam and Eve to sin. He wanted them to face the temptation, and based on all the evidences of his goodness, reliability, trustworthiness, reject the lie, reject the temptation, choose to know the good, solidify in their heart and character his methods and principles and loyalty and love to him. That's what he wanted for them. Unfortunately, they chose to know evil. Uh, Sunday's lesson says, read uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 4. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made and said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruits of the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit that is in the midst of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And then the third and fourth paragraphs in the lesson From the perspective of human logic, the argument of the serpent sounded much more convincing than did the word of God. First of all, there was no evidence in the natural world so far of the existence of sin and death. Second, the serpent was actually eating the forbidden fruit and enjoying it very much. So why should Eve restrain herself from doing the same? God's command seemed to be too restrictive and senseless. Unfortunately, in deciding between the two conflicting statements, Eve ignored three basic principles. One, human reason is not always the safest way to evaluate spiritual matters. Two, the word of God can appear to be illogical and senseless to us, but it is always right and trustworthy. 
That illogical, senseless thing, you can trust it. Come, let us be illogical and senseless together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. We should call our ministry, Come and Be Illogical and Senseless. (laughs) Kind of busy, but let's put it to vote. And the third, there are things that are not evil or wrong in themselves, but God has chosen them as tests of obedience. Would you be surprised if I had problems with these two paragraphs? (laughs) (laughs) No. Does it sound right to you what I read even before I had my little snipey, little snarky comments in there? Was it sounding right to you all, or did it sound like something was wrong? What is the idea that the quarterly is conveying in these two paragraphs? There's a, there's, a, there's a message. There's a message you want to make clear. They're trying to get it across strongly. What would you condense that message to be from the quarterly? Reason and think or don't reason and think? Oh, no, don't just take it. God says it. Okay, so it's very strong that you can't trust what you think and you can't trust what you reason. You should read and obey mindlessly, thoughtlessly. That's the way it came across to me. Do you think I'm overstating it? So it's undermining human reason and human logic very clearly. Let's demonstrate the problems with these two paragraphs. Let's demonstrate problems. Okay, The lesson argues that there is no evidence in the natural world of the existence of death for Eve. Does that mean there was no evidence in the natural world or the world around them upon which to make the right decision? Did they have evidence of the existence of God? Yes or no? Yes. Did they have evidence of the goodness of God? Did they have evidence of the love of God? Did they have evidence in the natural world of how life was built to operate on the principles of giving and beneficence and how all nature worked? Did they have evidence of liberty and freedom granted them by God and how he gave liberty and freedom of conscience to choose because of the enemy tempting and lying about God and they hadn't been struck dead? Is there evidence there? Wait, we're really free. God gives freedom for people even to badmouth them. Did they have evidence of that liberty? Yes. Uh, Did they have evidence that other intelligent beings were remaining loyal to God? The angels came and spoke with them. Did they have evidence that God gives freely, giving them dominion over the earth without controlling how they run things? So when the serpent ate the fruit and spoke with Eve, with all the other evidences provided and the warning God uh, that given and the testament of the angels what would have been the most logical and reasonable thing, using human logic and human reason, in that context, what would have been the most logical and reasonable thing for Eve to do? Walk away. Run away. Walk away, run away. How about go get her husband? Go get her husband, get a, third, get a second opinion, and the husband and she talk about it, and then maybe they call in God, have a conversation with him at the same time, before acting. I'm going to suggest to you that human logic did not fail here. It wasn't employed here. It wasn't used. She didn't reason it through at all. That's what I'm going to suggest. If they were to make evidence-based decisions with the evidence available at the time, the evidence would have confirmed and concluded that the serpent was lying. If you actually looked at the evidence around them in the world. It was a trick of some kind. The lesson states, human reason is not always the safest way to evaluate spiritual matters. Just think that through. How can the authors know this? If we assume that they're saying it's true, how can they know this? Would they have had to reason out the reasons why that statement is true? 
Is there some Bible verse that actually says, just a statement says, human reason is not to be used to know spiritual truth? Is there, or in fact, we've had just the opposite. Come, let us reason together. The essential is God. So, so there isn't a Bible verse that says this. So how would they have come to know this except they reasoned it out with the reason that they say can't be used to reason out spiritual things? <laughs> okay, you see the problem here? They use reason to create something that says you can't use reason. I Sounds unreasonable to me. I suspect they're projecting their idea of the carnal human heart uh, as a flaw of reasoning. It, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter. The carnal person, when, when, when God says in Isaiah 1, come let us reason together, is he talking to sinless Adam and Eve? No. Or is he talking to us? Let's, Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14.5. Is that talking to sinless beings or sinners? Scripture also says the human heart is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, and that's right. That's right. So, so the point is, though, how do we discern right from wrong? The mature are those who've read the Bible text and do what it says without question. You get the word. We have to read this. Through this one, we will understand it. Yes, that's right. We we use it. We're going to come to that in a minute too. But the point is, the lesson argues that we that using human reason is not safe, and that's a position they've gotten to by using their human reason. <laughs> well, in the old time, that was the problem. They were saying you cannot reason, and we have will understand for you. When they were reading the Bible, they say you cannot read the Bible because you don't understand. That's right. And so, using the scripture. They, they want us to take the scripture basically as it reads in harmony with their, their interpretation that they've interpreted with their human reason. Okay. That, that's what they want us to do. But, but if you take this further, how do they know we should, we should rely on the scripture? How would they know that? Wouldn't they have had to reason that out? Wouldn't they have had to test the scriptures? Wouldn't they have to, as you said, read and study it and see if it's true? How would they know whether it's true or not? And how would they know the 66 books and not the Apocrypha and not the Book of Mormon and not the Koran? How would they know not to use those scriptures as they just accept what they say is true? Wouldn't they have to reason that out? But we're not to use reason to discern spiritual things. That would mean including which scriptures we take. We shouldn't reason through that. I had real problems with this. The Bible says we have our inner understanding. Paul says in Romans, we even we don't have the word, we have the nature understand God, but we refuse God because of our own uh, inclination. That's what Romans 1 says. (laughs) That's right. So are they actually saying we are not supposed to use reason? Or if you actually reason out what they're saying, what they're saying is that we're supposed to surrender our reason to some theological professor who somewhere evaluated the books for us and decided that the 66 are reliable, but the Koran is not, and the Book of Mormon is not, and the Apocrypha are not. And because they've studied that out for us, we, we surrender our reasoning to them, and they tell us we shouldn't reason it out for ourselves. We're not smart enough. We're not smart enough. Just like the Church of the Dark Ages. Scripture says, as I already quoted, come let us reason together. And also says, uh, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. I've already quoted those to you. The Bible is very clear that we are to exercise our God-given abilities to reason and think and weigh out these things and every person be persuaded in their own mind because a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. The only way God wins is by converting us in our understanding, our heart. And we have to reason through and realize why his ways are the right ways. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples in John fifteen fifteen: I no longer call you slaves or servants, 
Rather, I call you friends because everything I've learned from the Father I have made known to you. A servant does not understand the master's business, John 15, 15. God wants our understanding agreement, not our slave obedience. God wants the, God does not want the obedience of a well-trained dog. The Bible says we have to meditate, and the meditation is trying to understand God, but at the same time says we have to pray too, because sometimes, yes, we can get confused, because there's so many things going around, we have to ask God for help to understand what he gave us. So on this idea of reason, that the lesson just kind of took a big hard, uh, human reason is not sufficient, uh, um, human logic failed, so forth and so on, this is another historic quote. I want to again show you, I'm going to do this several times today, historical approach to understanding these things, current church teaching on these things. You're going to find there's a contradiction over and over again because the historical approach was the the true Advent message was to present the Creator, worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, come back to understand Him and His laws as the laws upon which life were built. These are design laws. It got replaced with imperial rules and authoritarianism, and that's what you see coming through in much of the lessons. It's also known as penal legal theologies. This is Medical Missionary, May 1, 1892. If you want to write that reference down, Medical Missionary, May 1, 1892. You might enjoy this quote. It, it, can, um, it can make you smile, but it's a lot of truth in this. All whom God has endowed with reasoning powers may become intellectual Christians. Notice there's a, there's a, there's a qualifier there. Not all can become intellectual Christians. Only those who God endowed with reasoning powers. If you haven't been endowed with those, then you cannot become an intellectual Christian. (laughs) And some people don't actually have them. There are people, human beings on earth, that don't have good reasoning powers. They don't. And they cannot become. You could say in a different way, same, same principle here, all who God has endowed with musical ability can become um, musical composers for the glory of God. Okay? But those who don't have musical ability can't do that. Can't become that. Okay? You have to have reasoning powers, but they're endowed by God to be intellectual Christians. God has given abundant evidence of the truth of his word, and he requires that those who would be counted as his followers, uh, the followers of Christ, should study the scriptures, as was pointed out, that they may be able to give a reason of the hope that is in them. A reason. A reason isn't, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is actually not a reason. Okay. A reason of the hope that is in them with meekness and fear. He is not, and that fear means humility, not, not terror. He is not, he is not required, God has not required anyone to believe without evidence. This is this person's commentary. Let the inquirer after truth put to the stretch his mental powers in diligent study of the word of God. To neglect this duty is to place the soul in peril of eternal death. Each one is required to understand the conditions upon which eternal life depends. We must know what saith the Lord that we may be able to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We cannot afford to have another settle questions of such momentous importance as these concerning our soul's salvation. 
We must obey, excuse me, we must open the scriptures for ourselves, searching the word of God prayerfully, that we may know the truth as it is in Jesus. We cannot afford to trust to ministers, to follow idle traditions, to subject our souls to human authority, but we must know for ourselves what God has said. Every purse being full. This is not really kind of what I was getting out of these two paragraphs over here. Understand, though, there is this idea that, that maybe, maybe the lesson authors were attempting to lead our minds to, uh, in a very, you know, mercurious and, and, and murky way. Okay? Maybe they were attempting. And that's this idea. You, me, even Adam and Eve, even Gabriel in heaven are not the sources of truth. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.16, God lives in unapproachable light. We cannot, by our own ingenuity, delve into the truths of the infinite God and, cre- and, and discover them on our own. God must reveal the truth to us. Okay. So if they're trying to get to that, that's true. However, all the truths that God has revealed to us, which are many, 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 many truths, I, I couldn't, you couldn't put a number on the amount of truth God has revealed to us, and he reveals the truth to us in Scripture, and you quoted Romans 1, God's divine nature, seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, and taste and see that the Lord is good, life experiences, that the integrative evidence-based approach, Scripture, science, nature, and experience all harmonize together. God has revealed so much truth to us, all the revealed truths are ours to reason through, comprehend, and come to agreement with. But we simply can't go on our own and dig into the unrevealed truths and discover them on our own. That's, that, there's a truth in that. If they were trying to get there, it was a kind of a, an ineffective way, I think, of trying to get there. Monday's lesson. Uh, the last three paragraphs of Monday's lesson, it says, Eve's curiosity led her to exchange uh, it led her to the enchanted ground of Satan. There she was forced to decide either to remain faithful to God's restraining command or to embrace Satan's seductive allurement. Doubting God's word, she used her own senses, the empirical method, that of of personal observation, to decide between two conflicting statements. First, she saw that from a dietary perspective, the tree was good for food. Second, from an aesthetic viewpoint, it was a delight to the eyes. Third, from a logical analysis, the tree was desirable to make one wise. Hence, in her own mind, she certainly had good reasons to heed the word of the serpent and to eat the forbidden tree, from the forbidden tree. Unfortunately, this is what she did. Some people argue that all forms of knowledge are valid and as long as we retain that which is good. But the tragic experience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden demonstrate that knowledge in and of itself can be very detrimental. There are some things that, we, uh, that indeed we are better off not knowing. I think that last statement's true. There's no question there's some things we're better off not knowing. That, there's no question about that. But the first couple of uh, portions here, let's consider this. Does it sound like the uh, lesson might be taking a... Derogatory approach to the empirical method? Sounds like it. Uh, here's another historic quote. This was uh, written uh, more than 130, 40 years ago. It's, uh, you can find it in a book called Three Testimonies, page 68. Um, and again, contrast historical perspective to what we're being presented today. That's, that's what we're doing here. As I've stated before, you, my sister, rely upon your experience. Your experience decides... Uh, you, uh, your experience decides you to pursue a certain course. But that which many term experience is not experience at all. 
See, what she's going to describe, real experience, is empirical. It's an empirical method where you come to experience how reality works by trial, by testing, by observation, by measurement, and by application of the, of the, of the conclusions. Notice what she describes now. What real experience is. Uh, she says, uh, see, but, but that which many term experience is not experience at all. It is simply habit or mere indulgence, blindly and frequently ignorantly followed with a firm set and determination without intelligent thought or inquiry relative to the laws at work to accomplish the task or the result. See, this author understands there's, there's certain design laws that govern reality, and if you understand those, then you can take an empirical approach to testing things and get predictable outcomes and make informed decisions. That's what real experience is. So here, here, here's what the author says. Real experience is a variety of careful experiments made with mind free from prejudice and uncontrolled from previously established opinions and habits. That's empirical. The results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every habit that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. Again, laws upon which reality operate. If you're out of harmony with them, then you should do some careful experiments and see the outcomes and the conclusions, and you should be able to incorporate that data into a better assessment and make new decisions that are in harmony with the moral and physical laws. Because God is the creator. That's how his government works. The idea of others gainsaying what you have learned by experience seems to you to be folly and even cruelty itself. But there are more errors received and firmly retained from false ideas of experience than from any other cause. False idea, false idea of experience today? Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. My truth is this. Okay, that's my experience. My experience is my truth. And more errors come through this type of thinking than from any other cause. And, and this is true. For the, re, uh, for the reason that it is generally termed experience is not experience at all, because there has never been a fair trial by actual experiment and through thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. But, but empirical methods we should put aside. No. We are to come under the governance of our king in heaven, who is the creator of reality, whose laws are the laws upon which reality operate. We are to understand those laws. We are to live in harmony with those laws. And any questions that come up, we should be tested through in actions that apply from those laws and see the outcomes and then be per- persuaded in our minds to live in harmony with them. So what trial by experiment could Eve have conducted in Eden that would have enabled her to know the serpent was lying? Most obvious one, well, he, she saw the serpent eat the fruit. Let's give that a little observ- observational time. Let's just see what happens. Right? Okay, that's the easiest one. What about this one, though? What about calling God over to the tree and having God and the serpent confront each other and observing the interaction? <laughs> As Lucifer's cast out, as God casts, as, as Jesus, every time the demon, Jesus confronted the, the demoniacs, every time they're cast out. As Satan is cast out of the serpent, and she sees him in his true form, does that become empirical evidence upon which she can make an informed decision? And might she go, ooh, I was being tricked. See, there were options here. Now, the lesson did say that that she was forced to decide either to remain faithful to God's restraining command 
or to believe Satan. She was forced to decide. What do you think about that language? So I don't like the language. It is true once she was confronted with the lies that she would eventually make a decision. That's true. But did she have to make a decision at that moment? Could she have said, wow, this is, this is, this is heavy. This is big. This is this important stuff right here. You know what? I think I'm going to go think about it. Pray about it. Talk to my husband about it. Talk to God about it. I'm going to get some more data. It's such a big decision. I'm going to get some more data before I actually decide. Did she have to decide right then? No. She would eventually decide. There's no question. Once it was there, a decision would be made in her mind which, which to believe. But it, she was not required. So, And then so there's a principle the lesson may be trying to help us with, and it's an important one. I want to point it out to you, which is that we are to remain in a trust relationship with God, even if in the moment of the events, Things are confusing to us. We can't make sense of it. We're not sure which is the right or the wrong. That even in those moments of confusion, we are still to be loyal to God. That is true. That's a true point. Job, for instance, is a good example in this world of sin, where he had a lot of stuff happen to him that he didn't understand, and it didn't make sense to him, but he remained faithful. He knew that if he could just get a conversation with God, God would explain it and answer all his questions. He didn't doubt God. He doubted why it was happening. That's a different doubt. Okay? So uh, that, if that's the point they're making, then that's the correct point. We don't place our trust in God because every circumstance and event happening is perfectly explained to our understanding. That is not why we play trust in God. Job didn't have all of everything explained, and he still maintained trust. So we're not to make decisions merely on our own ability to understand this events. But we are to make decisions based on our ability to understand God, his goodness, his character, his trustworthiness, his methods, his principles, his loyalty, devotion, mercy, grace to us. Our decision in trusting God is always a fully enlightened and informed decision that he is trustworthy, even if we don't understand the events that are happening. Okay, does that make sense? You got some more to go through, guys. I'm going to have to push on. You can take some of this time from Russell's class next week. <laughs> so you can finish early next week, okay? <laughs> okay. Now, the lesson explores the question of Satan's lie, and if Eve should, uh, eat, uh, if Eve should eat the fruit, uh, if, if she should, she would surely die. I want to explore this question, the question of, you will not surely die. Was God telling the truth? You would die. Um, was Satan telling the truth? You would not die if you, if, you, if you eat the fruit, if you sin. And this can be explored from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, what did God mean when they say they die? Is this first death? Is this second death? Is it physical death? Is it spiritual death? Uh, would God inflict the death as punishment? Is this death as a natural result of sin? There's all different ways to explore that question. Satan's ultimate lie, though, is that death does not come from sin. That both the righteous and the wicked live eternally. They just live in different spaces, different conditions, and experience different attitudes from God. He smiles and pours love on one. He frowns and pours torment on the other. They both live eternally, just different experiences, different places, and different attitudes from God. That is, that is the, the lie of Satan. We can approach it by comparing various Bible texts 
the proof text approach. And if you do that, you will find that the, that the Bible consistently pre, uh, presents the view that sin, in fact, does result in death. You can find texts like in Ezekiel 18, 4 and, 8, and 20 and so forth that says the soul that sins, it will die. The Bible's pretty clear on this. But the more impactful approach to me to clarify this question, does sin result in death or not? Or do they live eternally in some, some other form or fashion? is to ask the question about what does the two views, what do the two views say about God? What kind of a being would God be if both views are true? First view, uh, we don't really die, we live forever. Uh, and this is built on a premise, it's built on a premise that is not found in Scripture. And the premise is that in Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, God created them in sinless perfection with some part of their being that can never die. They have some aspect of them that's already immortal, whether you call it a soul or you call it a spirit. That piece of them can never die because God created them immortal in Eden. That's the premise. And that's why the wicked who sin and are not reconciled, that part of them, their soul or spirit, whichever one, lives forever in a place of outward Torment, uh, darkness, utter darkness, torment, whatever, because it can't die. That's the premise. Let's look at that premise. If it's true, let's assume that premise is true for a minute. What would you say about God? Did God know before God created Adam and Eve that they were going to sin? Did he have foreknowledge? Did he foreknow that they would have children born in sin and conceived in iniquity? Psalms 51.5. Did he foreknow that billions of their descendants would be born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and billions would never come to repentance and therefore never be saved? Did he foreknow that? And if he foreknew all that, and he still created them with some piece of them that could never die, what kind of a God would he be to create beings he foreknew before he even did anything that billions of them would suffer for all eternity in torment? What would it say about him if he were that kind of a God? On the other hand, if you take the open theistic view, the open theists teach God doesn't have foreknowledge. He didn't know. Caught him off guard. Didn't see it coming. Didn't intend for it. He, he thought they were going to be loyal forever. It was a real shocker in heaven, boy. That's the open theist view. And if the open theist, he doesn't know, then what does it say about God? Okay, he can't see the future. Whatever, voluntary, otherwise, he puts blinders on himself. He doesn't look into the future. He doesn't see what's going to happen. You and I, we can't look into the future, can we? We can't see through the quarters of time. But can we still anticipate potential outcomes? So even if God couldn't see the future, could he not anticipate the possibility of rebellion? And if he, if he couldn't anticipate that, then, then really how omnipotent and omniscient is he? How trustworthy is he? How reliable is he? What does it say about his character? What does it say about his wisdom and his discernment? He couldn't figure that one out. Or if he did, yeah, he knew and he foreknew and he took, and he took the risk. He, he's a gambler. He's a gambling man. He lost that one. It cost him a lot. Jesus had to come to fix the... He, he, I mean, think about the implications on who God is on either one of these. It's terrible. God is an untrustworthy, cruel tyrant who created a structure that resulted in billions of his children being tormented for all eternity because he gave them immortality foreknowing that they were going to rebel and never be reconciled, or he didn't have the wisdom to know not to do it. It's horrible. 
Who do you think's behind that? The truth is, Scripture teaches the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Only the righteous live forever. The wicked do not. And we could go through many texts about that. And then I was going to go, and I really think I was going to go into Wednesday's lesson, and I think maybe we should briefly go into it. Yeah, we'll have to take a couple minutes to do this because it's such an important topic. And uh, in Wednesday's lesson, it talks about the fall. And after the fall, they ran and hid because they were afraid and they were ashamed. And this is why they ran and hid. The impact of what sin does, sin automatically, when you break God's design law, break the circle of love and trust, results in fear and selfishness, and then after that, shame and guilt. I want you to understand we are born inherently, born inherently fearful. Babies are born fearful. Shame doesn't show up till about 18 to 36 months. And guilt doesn't show up till about age four. Fear, we're born in fear, and we're fearful. Shame requires a social connotation. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. That's what the Bible says. But shame requires a social connotation. Just like guilt, there can be appropriate shame. You've actually done something shameful. Or you can have shame when you've done nothing shameful. I, I have, over the years, many times had people that were victims of sexual assault that felt shame. They were ashamed. They had done nothing wrong. They've done nothing shameful. But they had shame. That's an inappropriate shame. Shame is used by the devil and by evil to destroy, to fragment, to isolate, and to um, create um, a, a, a mental false reality that keeps people trapped in sin. Shame causes one to feel that uh, that uh, if anybody really knew the, the the shameful things of their life, their their sins and their past mistakes, that no one could like them, no one would love them. They would be ostracized, they'd be shunned, they'd be they'd be they'd be stoned in the public forum if, if people knew them. Uh, the shame causes you to fe- to have that fear and inflames the fear of rejection because you feel so shameful. Thus, shame leads to secrecy and isolation and social mask wearing. And false theologies that teach that when you confess your sins, they go beforehand into judgment and they're erased from the record books. And then when we get to heaven, no one will ever know the sins that you've committed. Because if somebody knew, well, they wouldn't like you. They would, you would, they would, they would, they would you'd be ashamed and they would throw you out. And this theology is very classic in, in Adventist theology. We're hidden, covered under the robe. One of the roles... Now, the reality is that when we come to Jesus Christ, the old dies, and we get a new heart and right spirit. The new man comes alive with new identity, new motives, new desires. And we look back on that old life before we came to Christ, and we recognize that those were symptoms of a condition we didn't choose. We were born with that condition. And through God's grace, he has provided remedy, and we are new people. And we are not ashamed of that, of that old, um, we don't live in, in, in the old shame because that's not who we are today. We live in the, in, the, in the new life of Jesus Christ. And one of the roles of a healthy, godly church is to help people experience the grace of God to overcome the shame that sin brings. And that grace, this is what the Bible talks about, we confess our sins one to another. See, the fear and the shame, the, 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 the terror and the shame is that if you were to confess your sin to another person and they really saw deep into your soul the secrets there, that you would be rejected. 
And so you never open and never let yourself be known. But as we confess, and this is part of the 12-step healing process, there's a step where they are to find one mature person and do an, a moral searching inventory and confess all the harms that they've ever done. And what's the purpose of that? To, to get legal part? No. It is the experience that somebody knows me, knows the corruption in me, knows the horrible mistakes that I've made, and they still value me and love me. And the grace of Christ is that we love sinners while we hate the infection that causes the sickness of the mistakes. And so the the alcoholic is loved, but the alcohol is not. The alcoholic is loved, but the disease process is not. And there's this understood, when you go to an AA meeting, hey, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Joe. Joe is welcomed, but it's understood that he's coming to a place where he can be free of the disease. The disease of alcoholism is something he wants victory over and to be freed of. The church is to function that way where we love each other. Somebody knows you and they love you despite it, but they don't accept the fear, the wickedness, the addictions, the negative destructive patterns that violate God's law because they know they destroy you and they love you and want you to be free from that. This is, this is, and so this is what the, give you a theological word. The woman caught in adultery. Dragged before Jesus after he dispatches the crowd. Where are your accusers? Now you can imagine the voice, the tone he had with her. Where are your accusers? I don't think so. I think it was, I think he had tears and I think he had love. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. So what is Jesus doing at that moment? He sees her. He sees her to the depths of her soul. He knows the patterns of destructive behavior. He knows the history, why she got into it. He knows the shame and the guilt that she has. He knows the inadequacy. He knows she feels she deserves to be stoned in her culture. But he loves her anyway. And he sees what she can be if she gives up the fear and the shame and stops engaging in destructive patterns. He sees that she can be whole, she can be pure, she can be holy, she can be... He sees this, and he treats her in that moment as his child who is cherished and loved. That is called imputed righteousness. It is not legal. It's functional. He imputed in his treatment of her the virtue and righteousness that he knew she could be if she accepted what he was imputing. And, and that won her to trust. It got her past the fear. He won't condemn me. He loves me. I can trust him. Open my heart. And she did. And he imparted his righteousness and she was born again. That's the reality. That's what God is wanting to do. And that's the role of the church to do this for people. To impute righteousness in the way we treat people as children of God. And that lead them to Christ so they can receive his imparted righteousness. And be transformed. And then we can stop. And then there's a unity that is inherent in our faith. We come into a unity. A brotherhood and sisterhood. A family. Where we have each other's back. 
And that is only possible when we come back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth and operate on the design law principles. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for how you've designed reality to run, for the beauty of your character, for the methods that you have employed in the way you govern your universe, for Jesus and all that he's accomplished for us, for the imputed righteousness that you see past the sickness of sin in our hearts, to see the holy and virtuous people we can be when you dwell in us. We ask now that your spirit be poured out to free us from fear, fear us from shame, free us from guilt and renew us in your righteousness that we can be your light to this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.